Welcome to episode number 134 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is the podcast where we're building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we have on the call Chrissy Clocker, Applications Engineering Manager at Donaldson Company, based at St. Paul, Minneapolis. Chrissy has over a decade experience in dust collection and applications associated with dust and combustible dust. We'll be talking about five misconceptions about collecting combustible dust. Chrissy, thank you for coming on the podcast and welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Chris. You know, I'm really excited to be here. And um, I just want to clarify that it is St. Paul, uh, Minnesota, not Minneapolis. Oh, my goodness. I told you right before the interview that I was going to mix those up, and then I did, <laughs> even though I wrote it down. No worries. <laughs> well, uh, we, we appreciate the correction, and we appreciate having you on the show. So we're talking about five misconceptions about collecting combustible dust. This comes from a couple of things. One, Chrissy did present for the Dust Safety Conference that we ran earlier in the year. She presented on the second day addressing common dust collection and combustible dust misconceptions which is where some of this material comes from. It seems that about every year we do an episode on dust collectors and the top challenges or mistakes or misconceptions that people have. Back in episode 18, we did an interview with Diane Cabe on the top five mistakes company makes in designing their dust collection system. Back in episode 79, we talked with uh, Kevin Cardwell about three more challenges in bag host maintenance, and that was around training, production, and replacement parts. And in today's episode, uh, 134, so uh, again, almost 50 later and another year later, we have Chrissy on talking about misconceptions about combustible dust and dust collection. So in the interview, we're going to go through Chrissy's background a bit. We're going to talk about the five misconceptions, and then go through each of these that she talked about at the, the dust safety conference. So I think the, the best place to jump in, Chrissy, is can you just explain for the audience what your role is at Donaldson and in supporting industries handling combustible dust? Yeah. So I, as you said, I'm the applications engineering manager at Donaldson. And so I do a lot of uh, support for our field sales team and our end users in terms of how to kind of help them mitigate the challenges that combustible dust uh, presents in their processes and applications. And so, as you probably know, you know, there are tons of dust um, out there. And there's also a lot of different technologies that people can use in terms of dust collection. So you've got traditional cartridge collectors, bag houses, wet wet collectors, and then couple that with all of the different mitigation strategies that are available in the different vendors and the types of products. And so it really can be kind of just a mess for some end users to kind of navigate. And there's a lot of information out there and there's a lot of misinformation out there that can be confusing. And so I kind of help help our end users and help our sales team kind of navigate those challenges in order to find the best strategy uh, for their customers and their applications and and um, what they're working on. Yeah, for sure. And I mentioned the previous episodes because we kind of do these, you know, five challenges or five misconceptions, again, about every year for dust collection systems. The previous ones were really around design of the system, around you know, challenges in training and replacement parts. But this one, we're really focusing on combustible dust prevention techniques, protection techniques, and we're going to get into those and the misconceptions around them because I, I was really impressed by your presentation at the conference and seeing this other light of, you know, what are the other challenges people are having in terms of fire and explosion protection for dust collection. So I think instead of kind of going through and saying each one from the start, maybe we'll just jump right in with the, the first one, the second one, and the third one. So what was the first misconception that you brought up in the, the conference? So the first misconception we talked about is the, the fact that using flame retardant media, uh, or sometimes it's shortened as FR media, the misconception is that using flame retardant media eliminates the risk of an event within your dust collector. And the reason why this is kind of a misconception is, uh, in a sense, you have to understand kind of how media works and then what FR media is. And so I'm going to back it up a, a minute here quick. Flame retardant media is often called FR media, and it's filter media that's treated with a flame retardant. And what this does is when that media is exposed to an ignition source, such as a flame, the media will self-extinguish over a given period of time. And the to understand why this is a misconception is you kind of have to understand how a filter works within a dust collector. 
So yeah, let's talk about that a bit. So you can have the the, the FR media in place, which puts out a fire, I guess, on the bags. But where else might the the event initiate the fire or the explosion that that would cause this misconception? The misconception is kind of around the media itself. In a traditional bag house or cartridge dust collector, it's going to build up this dust cake. And that dust cake is going to kind of build up over time, and then it'll get pulsed off, and it'll build up, and it'll pulse off. But what happens is that dust cake never truly 100% escapes the filter media. You always have some dust on there. And so the, the reason why the use of FR media is a misconception is because when you have a clean media sample and an ignition source is presented to it, it'll self-extinguish. But when you have a media sample where you've got a combustible dust that's now on this media sample, when an ignition source, such as a spark or an ember, um, hits that dust and it fuels or propagates a fire, the dust itself is what kind of continues to burn. And when that dust is burning, the media can't get rid of that ignition source, so it can't self-extinguish. And so the challenge with FR media is it will self-extinguish as long as there isn't an ignition source. But when you have burning dust or combustible dust or that fuel on your filter media because you have a used or dirty filter, that fuel source, that ignition source can't ever... And so it's going to just continue to propagate that flame and that fire, and it's going to cause that FR media to continue to burn. That makes sense. So I guess, what are some of the advantages of the FR media then? Why would I, you know, if you're talking to me and, and I'm an end user and say, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at FR media to reduce the fire in my dust collector, but what kind of things might you say to me at that point? Yeah, great question. You know, FR media really has a role in thermally generated processes. So applications such as welding or plasma or laser cutting, anything kind of that metal industry where you have applications and processes that generate a lot of spark. And the reason for this is when you have your dust collection system and you have dirty filters and it's time to replace them, your fan is running at 100% capacity. But when you replace those filters with new filters, they don't have that same level of resistance across the filter cake that the old filters did. And so one of the challenges with a lot of systems is if that fan is not dampered back to kind of close off some of that airflow, because you don't have that same level of resistance, you can end up pulling way more airflow than you expect. And what that translates to is at the end of your system at your hood, where you're actually drawing that material in, your capture velocity and the amount that you're actually pulling into the system can be significantly higher. And when you're running a process that generates sparks, that having a higher capture velocity can result in having more sparks being drawn into your system and therefore more ignition sources. And so FR Media has this really critical role in the first few hours or days of a filter's life. When you have a thermally generated process or something that creates a lot of sparks, because it really helps protect the filter from having those ignition sources. Um, if, you, if you happen to have an ignition source enter the system when you have new media in there and you don't have that dust cake. So you could also kind of offset this a little bit with maintenance practices and make sure you're diligent and dampening back your fan so that you're, you're not pulling as much air into your system. But case for some customers they just like that added protection and so the fr media really helps with the kind of first initial life okay so would i be right in saying that it's more about sort of wear and especially during the early time when you don't have dust cake build up on your your media that you'd look at fr media to avoid you know burning through it if you're using hot process or you have hot materials entering is that more the focus for that fr media than you know fire prevention if you will in the dust collector Yes, yes, definitely. Yep. So you want to look more at the application creating the dust. If you had a grain application, per se, where you don't have hot processes, there aren't sparks around, 
SR media isn't necessarily going to be as much of a benefit for you because it's the dust that's just going to get up on the on the collector. But one of the challenges that we have is when they, you know, once they have their media and it has a dust cake on there and it's combustible dust or not, it's the dust that's going to continue to fuel the fire. And so if you have a, a non-FR treated media sample and an FR treated media sample, and both of them have combustible dust on them, it's the dust that's going to continue to burn and you're actually going to see the same behavior out of the two. So really that FR treatment is for kind of the initial life when you don't have that dust cake. It's to help self-extinguish the flame or from an ignition source or an ember that would happen to get in from the process in those early in those early hours or days. That makes sense. So I think, I guess the big takeaway would be if you do have a dust collector with FR media or you're purchasing a dust collector, purchasing new filter for it, filters for it, and you come across this uh, FR media, one, talk to someone who's really experienced like Chrissy or the folks at Donaldson, but that's not really for fire protection and prevention or at least it shouldn't be the only solution for protection or prevention. It's uh, you know a focus more of the wear and the life of the material. So that sort of sounds like a good I don't know I don't know recommendation might be a strong word, but at least summary of that misconception. It is yes. Having FR media is not going to put out a fire within your collector because it's the fuel that's going to continue to burn. So you would need additional fire protection measures. You know both on the prevention side and the protection side. You do actually you you definitely need those. Okay, then let's let's move on to misconception number two because I think we're going to start talking about some of the culprits for, for fires. So I have listed misconception number two as the fan started the fire. What do you think about that? What have you seen and, and why is that a misconception? So this is a, this is a fun one to kind of help explain to customers. We, it's inevitable. You do have collectors that have fires in them um, because like I said, you've got processes that generate sparks or there's hot processes and embers can get in and and you have the potential for a fire. When the fire is put out, a lot of times customers will evaluate their dust collector and they'll notice that where the fan is, you have the most damage to your dust collector. And so they'll immediately think, oh, the fan must have started the fire. Clearly, you know, you have this fan wheel that's moving around, a spark was generated and it created this fire. We also have the most damage in this area of the dust collector. And yes, that's true. You are going to have the most damage or the most likely place to have damage within your collector because that is where you are moving the most volume and all of that volume of air through the dust collector, through that one point, through that fan. It's the hottest point because again, you're moving that air. And so you will see a lot of damage to that. But what I think a lot of customers are kind of missing is the big picture of how the airflow is moving through the collector. And so normally on a dust collector, your fan is kind of on the clean side of the media. And so that air is pulled in through your hood, through the filter media, through the cleaner section and out the fan. And so if a spark were to be generated, fan, you have to think that in order to get to the fuel, which is on the dirty side of the media, that spark would have to kind of travel backwards against that flow of air uh, through the filter media to the fuel that's on the dirty side of the collector. That's where all of that fuel is being collected. And so when you kind of think through, well, okay, what would it take for this spark to do this? You kind of get that light bulb effect with some customers going, oh, well, maybe that, that didn't happen. And so it's kind of a fun one to kind of help dispute with customers but then they also have the realization of okay so then where did the fire what did spark the fire you know or what where what did cause it to kind of happen yeah it's a really good point so i'll kind of summarize a bit so the you said the fan is generally the seen as the the culprit because it's you know a fast moving piece of mechanical equipment there's tight tolerances people can easily point to and say hey you know this is somewhere where ignition might have started and two, it's also a spot where you see a lot of damage. Um, so if you have a fire, then you might just think, okay, well, the fan must have started and go trying to spec out new fans that are not going to start that fire. But your point at the end of the day is for at least most dust collection equipment where the fan is on the clean side and sucking material through, 
the reason you're getting so much damage there is it's sucking the fire into the fan, but it wasn't the cause of it. It would have to go upstream to reach the material to, to cause the fire. So is, is that what you're getting at? Yes. Yep. So uh, the fan is moving the majority of that fire. So if your fire starts on the dirty side of the collector, that's where all of your fuel is collected. If it would start there, it's going to move all of that heat, that airflow, the, the um, smoke through there. And so that's why you lift the damage in the fan area. But the likelihood of spark being generated by the fan and traveling upstream through the filter media to the fuel and to then, you know, grow and, you know, um, produce this fire is unlikely. Uh, the more likely thing would be if a fan did actually create a spark, that spark is just going to fly right out the outlet of the fan. And so in that case, you'd want to look at, okay, if the fan created a spark and a spark were to be thrown out of the fan, where's my fan exhausting? Is it exhausting to atmosphere um, you know, an outside area in a parking lot, or is it exhausting back into a building? And then what other kind of associated um, risks are present because of that situation? That makes sense. I get kind of two questions that come to mind. One is, are there types of dust collection systems where the fan might be more likely to cause a fire in the dust collector? And then the second one is, well, if it's not the fan, <laughs> I'm playing in the investigator role. <laughs> My company said, figure out why it's catching fire. And you've told me it's not the fan. You know where else is the, the ignition source come from? So we'll we'll tackle the first one. Is are there types of dust collection systems where the fan might be more likely to be the ignition source of a, a fire in the dust collector? I'm thinking ones maybe where the fan are on the dirty side, or I'm not that familiar with the terminology, but a, is it positive pressure versus negative pressure? I'll, I'll let you explain anyway. What kind of systems might you be looking at that as the case? Yeah. So there are definitely applications where they want the fan upstream of the dust collector. Sometimes if it's, a, you know, uh, this might be like a pneumatic conveying system or if it's a, they, you can have a material handling fan. So in those cases, um, a lot of times you would just talk to your fan vendor and make sure that you have the right provision. So it might be in a non-sparking wheel or a certain motor rating. Um, just something to know that you're you're not going to have a fan that's going to potentially contribute to that. So there are applications like that. I would say traditionally, most dust collection, your traditional dust collectors are going to have the fan on the opposite side, the clean side, because we want to pull through the dust collector and keep the dust collector under a vacuum rather than putting it under positive pressure. You know, they're just, they're not really built for a lot of positive pressure applications. So definitely a possibility though. And so, okay, I, I determined that, yes, I do have a sort of typical dust collector. Uh, my fan is on the clean air side. So it's pulling the material through the, the, the dirty side dust collector through the bags and, and then exhausting. Let's say it's exhausting out to the air. Um, and you've told me now that my hypothesis is wrong. That was the fan's fault. You know, what are the other kind of common ignition culprits that we would see for, for dust collectors? Yeah. So uh, ignition sources can come in all shapes and sizes, right? You've got your traditional ones, those sparks, um, whether it's a process that, you know, creates sparks of welding and laser cutting. You also have hot work, um, hot processes, but you also have to watch sometimes your employees, you know, um, based, sometimes worker practices, you know, they might be um, doing things they shouldn't be near the, near the source where the hood is capturing the material. And so sometimes it could be just a, a, an unknown source that you're not really planning for. So ignition sources can come in different shapes and sizes. You know, there are a lot of different strategies that can help prevent against that. So you've got, um, spark detection systems that can go inline and upstream of the dust collector. You've also got a lot of, you've got inline, you know, we have a, a spark cooler or some sort of uh, spark mitigation device that can go into your system. So there's, there's a lot of different devices, but in order to kind of figure out where the source is coming from, you have to look kind of back at, okay, what were we doing? What was the work that was being generated? And for a lot of metalworking applications, you can actually even just have thermal reactions where you're collecting different metals that may not mix together, uh, carbon steel and stainless steel or, you know, aluminum and another type of metal. And so you want to kind of start looking at the beginning of, okay, what were the processes? What were the applications that were going on prior to the fire being started? Because those might give you some clues as to what triggered the event. 
Yeah, and I think the kind of whole thing that I want to wrap around to on that misconception was, in my mind, one of the biggest, most important aspects of not just blaming the fan is to look for the other ignition source so it doesn't happen again while you're you know, thinking that your fan caused it, but you didn't fix the sparks that you're being sucked up in the system or that you're uh, using incompatible or uh, collecting incompatible materials, as you suggest. So you know, make sure that we're not attributing the wrong bad actor and that we're also looking at what the other ones are. Yes. Yep. Okay. So we have misconception one and misconception number two. What's the third misconception we talked through in your, your presentation? Yeah. So the third one I covered is explosion vent is all I need. Um, and the, the reason I liked this one is uh, probably a day or two before uh, I even did the, the webinar uh, for the uh, dust safety conference was I was talking to a customer and he said, you know, that we did our DHA and, uh, and we saw the explosion vents, so we were good. And I kind of chuckled because I said, wow, you really just kind of fit right into this misconception. And, you know, I think an explosion vent is often used as a visual indicator that people understand their risks. And it's an, it's an easy one for customers to just say, oh, I'm covered. I have an explosion vent. I'm good. I, that's all I need. But I think to take it a step further, you also have to look at, okay, Yes, you have an explosion vent, but do you have the proper mitigation strategies to stop that uh, deflagration or um, hazard from extending to other pieces of process equipment? You know, so do you have the isolation valve? Do you have fire protection? Because fire protection really only requires three factors versus the deflagration requires, you know, four for a flash fire and five for an explosion. So, um, it was an, it's an interesting one, but it's kind of that reminder of it's not just the explosion event. There are other hazards um, and factors that you have to consider and mitigation strategies to handle those different risks. I'll say like a place where this comes up a lot is if you're using, you know, a checklist to assess the hazards. That's, that doesn't even sound right, using a checklist to assess the hazards. So I'll, I'll rewind on that and say if you're using a checklist to assess the hazards and you see the explosion event, okay, checks all, all, everything's good. <laughs> That's all we need. And what I hear you saying is you really need to look at prevention, protection, and isolation of both explosions and fires. Um, if you want to have a sort of complete solution to a, you know, protect your workers and your facility, but, but B also, you know, avoid shutting down, avoiding, you know, burning out the collector multiple times a year, which I'm sure you've, you've seen people do. So you really need to look at all those. It's not just, okay, there's a, a checkbox and your explosion vents on there and you're good. Not to mention explosion vents are engineered devices. And if they're not engineered correctly, <laughs> then they're, you know, you can basically the whole wall of your dust collector be, could become a vent if the size was too small of the, the vent you put on. So yeah, it, we really don't want to just check the box. Say, okay, it's got a vent. We're good to go. <laughs> I'm not sure if you've seen that before. <laughs> yes. I think there are so many end users who are looking for the simple solution, right? I have a combustible dust. What do I need? You know, oh, an explosion vent, an isolation device and put it outside. And it, they kind of get in the habit of, well, this is all I need. I've, I've like you said, I've checked the box. I am a huge advocate for my common saying is, you know, dust collection and mitigation strategies are not one size fits all. There are so many different strategies out there and choosing the strategy that fits your application really needs to be evaluated up front. Um, sometimes an explosion vent isn't the best choice, you know? So if you have, for example, a pharmaceutical dust, you know, and you have a deflagration, you're going to be expelling that pharmaceutical dust to the atmosphere through the explosion vent. And depending on what you're generating, you may not want that. So an explosion vent may not be the right mitigation strategy for you. You want to make sure you're choosing a strategy that works for the dust. It works for the process. It works for the employees, for the, the dust collector and for, for everyone. Um, and so I think, like you said, with the checklist, it, goes the same way with mitigation strategies. And you want to make sure that you're applying appropriate choices um, that meet the the hazards and the risks within your process, but are also based on a risk evaluation, you know, looking at not just the dust collector, not just the dust, but kind of the entire system design 
and creating this kind of holistic approach to finding a strategy that really fits the unique kind of application risks and hazards. Yeah, and I think we'll probably circle back on this in misconception five, which is is around prescription option, prescriptive options, and um, other approaches. So maybe we'll we'll circle back. But before we get to number five, I want to talk about number <laughs> number four because it's uh, it's been discussed a lot in the the community in terms of explosion protection. So maybe give me the misconception, and then let's let's chat about it a bit. Yeah, this is also one of my favorites. Um, the misconception is that my dust collector is less than eight cubic feet, so I don't have any risks to address. Um, and we see this one, you know, not not a lot because I think we're trying to help educate end users um, out there that, you know, NFPA 650 says, you know, if, if it's greater than eight cubic feet, you have to protect it for explosion. You have to put it outside and, you know, otherwise you know, have it indoors, but properly. And so we get a lot of customers who say, oh, it's okay. I'll just make it fit in this small box and we'll work. And then I don't have to, I don't have to deal with NFPA. And, you know, I, I kind of chuckle whenever I see the request because I'm like, you know what, let's, let's not just try and avoid the NFPA requirements. Let's look at what you actually need for your application. And so if you, if you try and visualize eight cubic feet, it's, two feet by two feet by two feet. And it's a really small volume or like a 55 gallon drum, right? That's about eight cubic feet. It's really hard to have a dust collector that is properly venting um, a continuous application where you're generating dust and you're trying to do all this stuff and, and have it last for a, a significant amount of time. And so when you look at these smaller pieces of equipment, they're meant for intermittent duty applications, you know, maybe once or twice a week, you're just kind of cleaning up some extra stuff. They're not, the regulation is not meant for industrial dust collection systems. Um, and, and so for that reason, I often ask them and say, okay, let's, let's start back with what do you need in your application and your dust collection system? And then let's see, okay, if we get through all of the expectations that you have for the system, if it can fit in a small dust collector of that size, which is, there's not very many out there, but um, yes, it might be a viable solution, but if it doesn't, let's go to this other one. And so for those few occasions where we do find ourselves with a small collector that does have a dirtier volume, less than eight cubic feet, the question then going back to the customer is, okay, just because you have this small collector doesn't mean you don't have a risk. You know, the volume of the collector isn't going to change the combustible properties of the dust. It just means that it's really challenging to mitigate this. You know, if you have got a two foot by two foot wall, it's tough to put an explosion vent on that two foot by two foot wall. Um, it's tough to find isolation devices that are that small and to properly mitigate this to handle the risks. And so, one of the things that customers have to do is if they're going to install these small pieces of equipment is they have to accept the fact that there is a potential for a risk. And if there is a potential for a risk, what would be the impact if we were to have an event, whether it's a fire or a deflagration? And to help customers with that, NFPA provides guidance in the annex of 652. And they say, when you have these small devices, you have to look at the volume around the dust collector. And they give you a volume of 64 cubic feet. I think it's about a 10-foot diameter rate, a 10-foot diameter around this collector. And you say, okay, in all of this area where this collector is going to be located, what could get compromised if there was an event to occur? And that has to go into kind of the risk decision that the process owner has to make of, okay, is it going to be suitable to have a dust collector um, of this size in this location? And if we have an event, is anything in the area going to be compromised? And if yes, you know, then maybe we should put, uh, look at, you know, relocating the device or finding a different solution. Um, but if no, then that's, that's their risk that they're going to take on and kind of figure out how to handle that from a mitigation strategy. And so I think what I'm hearing you say, and, and these are my words, not yours, so tell me if you kind of agree with this, but instead of going into it saying, okay, let's use less than eight cubic feet so that things are easier and we can avoid NFPA requirements, 
the real way you should frame that is, okay, if we can use less than eight cubic feet, we're going to actually have to look at the risks even harder because we're allowing some things to happen. So it's like, instead of it being the easy way out, <clears throat> it's almost the hard way out because then you got to look at, okay, well, where's it placed? Um, we do have a video in the Dust Safety Academy. I was trying to, oh, I got it here, of a creamer dust explosion in a 55-gallon drum. So if you go to dustsafetyacademy.com, um, if you join up there in the resource library, there's a video. And it shows the uh, <laughs> it shows the explosion in a 55-gallon drum with the drum lid open and then with the drum lid clamped on. And when the drum lid's clamped on, the, the lid shoots off, I'm going to say, four stories into the air. It's, it's above the, the frame of the camera, so you can't see, but at a velocity that's not going to probably um, you know, cause a fatal injury unless it hits you in a really bad spot. Uh, but it's going to cause you know injuries for sure. And then you still got to deal with fireballs and stuff as well. So there, an explosion in a 55-gallon drum is not a, you know, not a small explosion. If you look at the 20-liter chamber, it's very, very thick steel. Um, and it's made very, very thick steel for a reason because the explosions can be quite intense. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I said I would some paraphrase your, your words and then I went on sort of a ramble about my own words. So if I go back to the paraphrasing, it's, it might actually be more work to plan and design this less than cubic eight, less than eight cubic feet dust collector than it would be, you know, to, to go with something bigger that's going to fit your application and also use, I'll say, correct protection methods. Does that, does that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah. You know what? It's, and it's a great, it, it's a it's a different way that I was kind of originally thinking of it. And it's a great way to kind of help visualize that for a lot of customers is I know exactly the video you're talking about, because a lot of times when we see customers who want to use these types of collectors, they are located indoors, you know, and if you go with, you know, a device that happens to be larger, there are mitigation devices to kind of contain the deflagration, right? So that it doesn't spread to other pieces of process equipment or upset, you know, nearby coworkers and employees. But with these small devices, because you don't have those same mitigation strategies, you kind of have to accept the risk. And, you know, it's really hard to predict how far uh, a lid, like you said, is going to get thrown or what the actual event's going to be until you have it. And so looking at kind of the environment around the collector, not just the collector, but looking at the environment around the collector, but then also worker practices. So housekeeping probably comes way more important, you know, making sure that the area around the dust collector doesn't have fugitive dust laying around. I'm thinking of bins, you know, to make sure you don't have uh, high concentrations of fuel in there to kind of help fuel another event. Uh, so there's a lot more steps that kind of have to get look at, looked at that end users don't think about. They're just so focused on avoiding NSP and not having to pay for the upfront initial cost of those mitigation strategies. But now they're paying for it in different ways because they have to look at it for risk scenario in just such a different view. Yeah. And I'll, I'll add if there's, you know, government inspectors or fire investigators that are listening to this podcast, and I know there are, that's the other side. Like if you see these systems, then you need to start asking some of those questions. Well, is this beside a workstation? Um, is it an area that's prone to have, you know, dust during normal operation or even abnormal operation? The 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 time you're most likely to have that little small dust collector explode is during abnormal operation, which is also the time you're most likely to have dust everywhere because something happened to to upset the abnormal conditions. Absolutely, and housekeeping practices. Yep, exactly. Those are all things that should be identified in a you know a dust hazard analysis and go into. Okay, if you're if you are choosing to use this um, a cubic foot, one you can look and see if there are some protection and prevention solutions that are available. But two, then you need to figure out okay, well, what else do we need to do to to mitigate the chance of uh, an incident happening or that incident escalating to be worse? A couple of things come to mind that are similar to that that we've seen we've had other training on enclosureless dust collectors. A lot of people use that and say, okay, now we don't have any issues because we don't have to follow the NFPA guidelines for such such and such well you need to think about other things and inerting is another one okay well we just inert the process it's all safe now well you know you have an asphyxiation hazard you've introduced you need to have extra redundant sensors there's it's these things that come out easier by avoiding the first initial protection solutions actually become more of a headache down the road to to protect and prevent incidents from happening 
Well, and I think a lot of customers are very much focused on preventing the explosion, right? Because the explosions are what create the most damage to a facility and kind of hit the headlines in the news. And so I think, but what they miss is, you know, fires are so much more likely, you know, even with an enclosureless collector, like you said, you know, you can still have the potential for a fire. You've got fuel, you've got oxygen, you've got, you just need the ignition source. And same with these little, with these little pieces of equipment is you, and is you also have the risk of a fire, you know, deflagration may or may not, you know, depending on kind of your situation, but it's not just the explosion that you have to look at. You still have the risk of a fire and how are you going to address that risk and with your employees and, uh, there's there's so much that goes into it. Yeah, I, I agree. And some more fodder for those that are interested in, you know, understanding the the other risks. So not having the, it sounds terrible to say this, but the blockbuster explosion. There, I did a case study in episode 109 of the podcast. It's called the true cost of ignoring your combustible dust challenges. It talks about a, a real facility. Um, I didn't name the facility or where it is, but that had I think seven. I think it was two explosions and and five fires or something along those lines from 2016. And I just noticed it closed down last year. Um, and I sort of walked through the costs associated with that. So they burned out their dust collector. The first, the first fire, I think, actually burned out their scrubber on the other side of their dust collector, which really made the town not happy that they were in because everything smelled really bad. So they had everything from, you know, I think that five OSHA investigate or five OSHA yeah, five OSHA inspections, several with citations and penalties. They had lawsuits from the city. They had to pay for a new scrubber. They burned out their dust collector twice. They had one explosion that that injured a worker, not severely, but did injure a worker. And these things sort of built up and built up and built up. You know, fire, fire, small explosion, quote unquote, small explosion. You know, fire, small explosion, citation, investigation, had to pay for a consulting company to come out, had to pay for a consulting company to come back out. Um, I sort of added all these up in that episode. And in the end, you see they, they had to shut their doors. They couldn't operate anymore. And that's the, that's, you know, the other side of this, not having a blockbuster explosion, but almost bleeding to death, if you will, because you're not looking after these fire and explosion hazards. Yeah. You know what? I, um, I saw like a different kind of risk analysis tool a couple months ago and one of the things that brought up at the end was when you're when you're evaluating the risk of an event from happening it was you know environmental you know you've got your employee but then it was also kind of the the social risk of it and i thought it was so intriguing i'd never really even thought of that before but it's truly that the reputation damage that you have and just the impact to the community around your facility is so important and not something that a lot of customers look at when they're, because they're just so fixated on, okay, if I have an event, here's how much I'm losing in production, right? I, you know, I'm losing X dollars a day, but it's the economic, you know, the financial risk, but then also the social risk of what are you doing to the your community, um, to nearby neighbors. Uh, and it's, it's definitely something that has to get played into that, hazard assessment and kind of when you're thinking through the strategies and choosing to ignore risks versus mitigate them. Well, I would, I would say where that really might be helpful, I think it's helpful in lots of ways, but one area where I can see that might be helpful is say you're a health and safety manager and you need to convince your executive team or your leadership of the need for these things. You start tallying some of that up. And so this example I'm talking about, they did have lawsuits. They, I think they were, they were accepting daily hundred hundreds of dollars penalties for pollution uh so every day i think it was um, i can't i say it in the podcast episode but we'll say it's six hundred dollars six hundred dollars a day so you're talking you know eighteen thousand a month penalties that they were just accepting because they couldn't do anything else because they need to keep the operation running so they had they had that they had lawsuits they did a lot of public outreach like they started some facebook groups at community days to try to reestablish their image um, and I mean, all that has a bottom line dollar cost to it. So you can use some of those to you know, hopefully sell to your, your upper say, yeah, it's not just a, or it's not that it's not just a dollar decision, but all those things 
also have dollar costs associated with them directly because you need to pay for them and then indirectly as well in in things that are intangible like reputation and that yeah, financial you know financial implications um damage to to facilities and equipment loss of production you know i feel like that can often be brought back you know it might take a lot of time but reputational damage and just kind of those implications to your community and society that can take you to remedy and really bring back. And so I think that's it's it is kind of almost an intangible risk that you have to look at it because sometimes you can't you can't actually quantify it or you know figure out a dollar amount to put to it until it actually happens because it could it could spread so quickly and just take forever to kind of come back. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So I'll, I'll recap. We had misconception number one, which was FR media removing the the fire risk uh misconception two which was the fans that are the fire misconception three was an explosion event all i need misconception four was around um, eight cubic feet dust collectors and not having any risks to address what's the the kind of concluding misconception that we'll we'll talk about in this episode then at misconception number five yeah so the last one um is probably has been touched on multiple ways through all of the other four but the misconception is the only mitigation choices are the prescriptive actions that are outlined in the NFPA standards. And um, one of the things that kind of leads this to be a, a misconception for a lot of customers is the NFPA standards are written so that they can be adopted by a city or a state and then kind of used as kind of part of their code. Um, but they aren't actually code. And so when you read the standards, it often seems like this is the mandate. This is what you have to do. But what is often missed is there's a section in each of the NFPA standards on the performance-based method. So there's two compliance methods. There's meeting the prescriptive methods, which are outlined in the standards. But then there's also a performance-based method where it gives process owners the ability to kind of choose their own mitigation strategy based on their risk assessment and kind of doing their dust hazard analysis and looking at this is my application. Here's kind of what the mitigation strategies are outlined in NFPA. But in order to kind of achieve those same goals as the prescriptive strategies, but based on you're tailoring them for your application and your process. And so you're kind of choosing an, an alternative strategy that meets the same objective. It's just done in a different method uh, based on kind of your risk analysis. And I guess just kind of thinking about this, and I honestly don't know the answer, so it's a good question for you. Like, is it pretty common for a facility to know about a performance-based option or to ask for it? Or are they asking more for prescriptive base or are they even or is it even you know one step removed and they don't know what they're asking for they just need something today like what's the landscape look like in terms of different design methodologies to to meet these standards yeah you know it um it really it it's across the board um you have anything, a lot of yeah. it can be anything um you have a lot of customers who don't understand nfpa they don't know the standards they're not really as knowledgeable on it. They just get told, uh, I'm dealing with combustible dust. I've been told I have to do this. And so for those who are kind of unwilling to look into it, they often tend to navigate more towards the prescriptive requirements because they want the easy button. You know, oh, this tells me what I need to do, so I need to do it. Um, and they're not really willing to kind of look at the risk assessment. And while that may be a, a suitable option for some end users, uh, sometimes it may not be the most practical or the most applicable. And so when you get into industries where the end users are a little bit more knowledgeable, they kind of have an understanding of the hazards and kind of the different mitigation strategies that are out there, they tend to look more at what is the application? What is my risk pot potential? Both the, you know, the uh, likelihood of it happening and the severity of, a, of an event from happening. Um, and they will tend to make more of that risk-based decision. And sometimes it might be a cheaper mitigation strategy. Sometimes it might be choosing to not follow through with and to not do any sort of mitigation on it. Um, and sometimes it might be a more expensive option. 
you really kind of see a little bit of both. And so I think where, where we play a role is kind of helping customers kind of recognize and understand that there are different strategies. What works for some people may not work for others. And to kind of give them a view of, you know, these are different options. But if you choose to not go with the prescriptive option, you do want to make sure you have your DHA completed and you've thought through all of the different um, risk potentials out there and the hazards and figured out, okay, if we're not going to do this, then what are the associated risks of choosing to not do that? And we have to have different mitigation strategies, you know, for those potential risks down the line. Yeah, and it makes a lot of sense. And I, I don't have a good kind of thing figured out here, but I always think of it as a Venn diagram with three things when we talk about performance-based design um, or even even dust hazard analysis in general. If people ask me, well, can, you know, can I train somebody internally to do a dust hazard analysis or can anyone do a dust hazard analysis or what do I need, what course do I need to take to do a DHA? What course do I need, need to take to do performance-based design? It's, it's, it's always hard to answer. You need three things in my mind. You need you know, knowledge about the technology and combustible dust in general. So like general knowledge, you need facility specific knowledge. So that application or that material, um, for example, if you have somebody that's really well versed in grain, maybe you don't want them designing the system for metal handling or pharmaceutical. They, you know, you need some knowledge about that industry specifically. And then the third one is the ability to avoid biases by whatever the plural word is for bias, which I'm not sure right now, <laughs> um, but to avoid those sort of things that happen. So, you know, downward pressures of your your boss breathing down your neck saying, well, we can't do that, or bringing in somebody externally to have an uh, uh, extra set of eyes. These are things that come up if you start doing it, I'll say internally. So those are three things, general knowledge, specific knowledge, and ability to avoid, you know, biases. If you can have all three of those things, and you can really make a, an excellent performance-based solution, um, and that's you know, the, the best way to go in, in a lot of cases, it, it might not be more, it might not be cheaper to do it. And in all likelihood, it'll probably be more expensive. Um, but there are maybe cases where you can make an argument where it's going to be cheaper, but that's not the point I'm trying to make. If you just like hold your thumb up and say, okay, performance-based design, we're not going to do anything. <laughs> and, you know, you don't have that general knowledge, you don't have the specific knowledge and you're completely biased on the outcome of that analysis. Um, then it's probably not going to be a very good performance-based design. I'd hope it gets stopped along somewhere along the way when when a you know an HJ authority having jurisdiction or somebody looks at it and goes oh whoa that's you know we we really need to look at that anything there for you anything bubble up to the surface when I mentioned those things Chrissy yeah absolutely you know you you hit on the head you know I think anytime you do a DHA right like you should have a group of people some someone who knows what the dust is what the application is what's the process that's generating the contaminant someone who knows what the equipment is and how it works. And I think a lot of times, uh, and then obviously someone who understands the risk profile, you know, if, if, if you have a DHA and you only have, there's a, there's a deflagration risk, you know, you're missing out on all of the potential fire risks out there. Or if you don't understand the technology, and I think that's where, you know, writing these five misconceptions, we wanted to kind of help share that because so often when you're doing your dust hazard analysis, it's people's perception of how the dust collection equipment is going to work um, and the risks associated with it. You know, everyone thinks that because the deflagration happens in a dust collector, you know, that's where it's the most likely. You've got fuel, you've got oxygen, you've got a containment, um, you've got uh, a dispersion when those filters are pulsed, and you've got an ignition source. You know, so it's likely that the dust collector is a good home for an explosion. But the dust collector doesn't cause the fire, right? It didn't create the ignition source. Uh, it just happened that occurred there. And so when you, when we were writing the misconceptions, we really were looking at it from an aspect of kind of adding to that point of having someone who's knowledgeable in the technology, in the dust collection system, you know, who understands the hood designs, the duct system, you know, to understand this is, this is the potential for sparks or ignition sources to get drawn in. The duct system, if it's undersized, you know, or um, we've got dust potentially laying in the ducting itself and creating additional hazards and compromising uh, isolation devices. You know, and, and so having someone who understands the technology, how the dust collector works, you know, what does it mean when you have finely divided material being dispersed within a collector versus using a cyclone or using a wet collector? You know, what are the different risks that the technology um, also could 
lend to is is so important for end users to understand and have that voice when doing their dust hazard assessment. Because if you're only going off of perception, kind of like what you said, you know, you don't have that well-rounded, balanced viewpoint, and you're not going to give the risk assessment a fair judgment if you have those biases in terms of how things work or not understanding equipment. Um, and so it's, it's, uh, it, it's such a good point to kind of have that group effort and make sure that you've got all of your bases covered to do a really good dust hazard assessment. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's a great place to leave off this episode on these misconceptions. Um, I want to say thank you for uh, your presentation at the Dust Safety Conference. It was very much appreciated. And, and thank you for the work that you're doing at, at Donaldson with your team there. And thank you for coming on the podcast to share today. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. It was super fun. Awesome. Thanks, Chrissy. We'll talk soon. Thanks. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and Chrissy Clocker, Applications Engineering Manager and Donaldson Company based out of St. Paul. And we've been talking about five misconceptions about collecting combustible dust. Um, as I, I mentioned in the outset, this is based on uh, material from a presentation that Chrissy gave at the Dust Safety Conference earlier uh, this year in 2021 uh, about common dust collection and combustible dust misconceptions. In the episode, we talked a bit about Chrissy's background, and then we jumped right into these five misconceptions. FR media removes the risk of a, of a fire or an event in your dust collector. The fan started the fire. An explosion vent is all I need. My collector is less than eight cubic feet, so I don't have any risk to address. The only mitigation choices are prescriptive actions outlined in NFPA. I found it really interesting going through these. And as I said, it kind of pairs well with some of the previous mistakes and challenges and misconceptions episodes we've done on dust collection systems, but adds in this element of, okay, it's a combustible dust, it's a reactive dust. Um, a couple of kind of key themes that came out that I think are really interesting and informative to highlight is one, explosion risk versus fire risk. It, it is really important to identify, prevent, protect, and isolate from both of these hazards. So the, the third one was an explosion vent, all I need. So you see an explosion vent and, and all is good. Well, that's only one piece of the puzzle. And I talked about this previous episode I did in episode 109 on the true cost of ignoring your, your combustible dust challenges. And it showed a facility that really had a slow bleed to death from all of these sort of things, but it wasn't some catastrophic explosion that took lives and, and, you know, leveled the entire facility. It was a slow, you know, hundred thousand dollars to equipment here and, you know, a lawsuit there and OSHA inspections and citation penalties and, you know, injuries. And it was this multiple small incidents over time. We're happy in that case that we didn't have a large scale explosion, although often, and when we do have a large scale quote unquote blockbuster incident, you look back and you see a history that's like this. Um, so maybe that was coming down the, the tracks for this company. I don't know, but you need to look at both fire and explosion risks. And then same thing if, you know, you need to have an informed decision on where, if you're having instances, where are they being started at? We talked about the fans starting the fire and how that not being likely under a lot of typical dust collection designs, the role of FR media. And towards the end, we sort of closed out on performance-based design. We talked about dust hazard analysis. We talked about the experience needed to, to make good judgments in this space. So having the knowledge generally about explosion protection, fire protection, combustible dust, having knowledge specifically about applications and materials involved, um, and being able to sort of step outside and, and know what you don't know, but also to step outside and have an, an external viewpoint. You may be able to find one person that has all these characteristics that maybe sits outside your, your company is able to, to come in externally, or really it's probably best to have a team where different team members have different strengths in these areas to, to look at that. So I want to close out just by thanking uh, Chrissy for coming on. Again, thank you to Donaldson for the work that they do. And thank you, the, the listener, for listening to the podcast. If you have any questions about the the material in this episode, um, we'll have a way to contact Christy uh, at the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 134. That's the episode number. I'm at chris at dustsafetyscience.com. So always, I want to say thank you for listening to the podcast. Um, and I appreciate everything you're doing to make industries handling combustible dust safer out there every day and every week with the work that you do. Thank you.